Chapter Two of the Iron Horse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Iron Horse by Robert Michael Ballantyne. Chapter Two: The Driver Visits a Little Elderly Gentlewoman and prepares the iron horse for action next day john marrett spent the brief period of repose accorded by the doctor to his leg in romping about the house with the baby in his arms being a large man accustomed to much elbow-room and rapid motion and the house being small john may be said to have been a dangerous character in the family on such occasions apart from baby no elephant was ever more sluggish in his motions but when coupled professionally speaking to his own tender infant john knew no bounds his wife knew no rest and his baby knew no higher earthly bliss sometimes it was on his shoulder sometimes on his head and often on his foot riding with railway speed to bainbury cross again it was on his back in the crib or on the bed being tickled into fits of laughter which bid fair at times to merge into fits of convulsion to the horror of little gertie who came in for a large share of that delightful holiday's enjoyment, but whose spirit was frequently harrowed with alarm at the riotous conduct of her invalid father. In his glee the man might have been compared to a locomotive with a bad driver, who was constantly shutting off the steam and clamping on the brakes too soon or too late, and thus either falling short of or overshooting his mark. What between the door and the dresser, the fire, the crib, the window and the furniture, John showed himself a dreadfully bad pilot, and was constantly running into or backing out of difficulties. At last, towards the afternoon of that day, while performing a furious charge round the room with baby on his head, he overturned the wash-tub, which filled the baby with delirious joy, and Gertie with pleasurable alarm as for mrs marrett she was too happy to have her husband at home for a whole day to care much about trifles nevertheless she felt it her duty to reprove him lest the children should learn a bad lesson there now john i knew you'd do it at last you're much too violent and you shouldn't ought to risk the baby's neck in that way such a mess how can you expect me to keep things tidy if you go on so john was very penitent he did not reply at first but putting baby into the crib where it instantly drowned with a great yell the shriek of a passing train he went down on his knees and began to swab 
up the water with a jack towel lou ran laughingly from the corner where she had been sewing and insisted on doing it for him you'll hurt your leg father if you bend it so and i'm sure it must be swelled and pained enough already with so much romping not a bit lou objected john it's me as caused the mess and justice requires that i should swab it up there go sew that sentiment into a sampler and hang it up over your bed but lou would not give in while they were still engaged in the controversy the door opened and young bob merritt stood before them with his eyes wide open and his hair straight up on end as if he had recently seen a ghost this aspect however was no sign of alarm being his normal condition ha huh. seems to me somehow that somebody's been up to something right bob replied his father rising from his knees and throwing the jack towel at him the lad easily evaded the shot being well accustomed to elude much more deadly missiles and picking up the towel quietly set to work to perform the duty in dispute you're wanted he said looking up at his father while he wrung the towel over a tin basin eh where up at the shed i'm on sick leave said john can't help that the six thirty p m passenger train must be drove and there's nobody left but you to drive it jones is away with a goods train owing to maxwell having sprained his ankle and long thompson is down with smallpox so you'll have to do it i offered him my services but the manager he said that intelligent lads couldn't be spared for such menial work and told me to go and fetch you maxwell had no business to sprain his ankle said john merritt however he added cheerfully i've had a rare good holiday and the leg's all but right again so molly let's have an early tea i'll give it a good rest for another half hour and then be ready for the six thirty p emmers cut off your steam will you this last observation was made to the baby and was accompanied by a shake and a toss towards the ceiling which caused him to obey instantly under the impression no doubt that the fun was to be renewed being however consigned to the care of gertie he again let on the steam and kept it up during the whole time the family were at tea which meal they enjoyed thoroughly quite regardless of the storm he was asleep when his father rose at last and buttoned his heavy coat up to the chin while mrs merritt stood on tiptoe to arrange more carefully the woolen shawl round his neck now don't stand more than you can help it on your hurt leg john certainly not ducky said john stooping to kiss the upturned face i'll sit on the rail as much as i can like a merican raccoon by the way he added turning suddenly to lou you delivered that note from young mr tipps to his mother yes immediately after i got it from you 
and I waited to see if there was an answer, but she said there wasn't. It must have contained bad news, I fear, for she turned pale while she read it. Hmm, well, said John, putting on his cap. Don't know nothing about what was in it, so it's no business o' mine. With a hearty good evening to all, and a special embrace to Gertie, the engine-driver left his home, accompanied by Bob, his hopeful son. Mr. Sharp, said Bob, as they walked along, has been making uncommon particular inquiries among us about some of the porters. I rather think they're a bad lot. Not at all, replied his father severely. They're no more a bad lot than the drivers, or for that matter of that, than the clerks, or the directors, or the lamp boys. You ought to be getting old enough by this time, Bob, to know that every lot of fish in this world, however good, has got a few bad uns among em. As a rule, railway directors and railway clerks and railway porters and railway officials of all sorts are good, more or less. The same may be said of banks and insurances and all sorts of things. But do what you may, a black sheep or two will get in among em, and, of course, the bigger the concern, the more numerous the black sheep. Even the clergy ain't free from that universal law of nature. And what's Mr. Sharp been inquiring at her? Ah, what indeed, replied Bob. How should I know? Mr. Sharp ain't the man to go about the line with a ticket on his back telling what he's at her. By no means, police superintendents ain't usually given to that, but he's at her something particular. Well, that ain't no business of ours, Bob, so we don't need to trouble our heads about it. There's nothing like minding your own business. Same time, added John after a short pause, there's no reason why, as a seafaring friend of mine used to say, a man shouldn't keep his weather eye open, d'ye see. Bob intimated that he did see, by winking with the eye that chanced to be next his parent. But further converse between father and son was interrupted at a turn in the road, where they were joined by a stout, broad-shouldered young man, whose green velveteen jacket, vest, and trousers bespoke him a railway porter. "'Evening, Sam,' said our driver with a friendly nod. "'Going on night duty, eh?' "'Yes, worse luck,' replied Sam, thrusting his powerful hands into his pockets. "'Why so, Sam? You ain't used to my night duty?' "'No more I do,' said Sam testily. But my missus is took bad, and there's no one to look after her properly. For that old ooman we got ain't to be trusted. Tis a hard thing to have to go on night duty when a higher duty bids me stay at home. There was a touch of deep feeling in the tone in which the latter part of Sam Natley's remark was uttered. His young wife, to whom he had been only a year married, had fallen into bad health, 
and laterly the doctors had given him little encouragement to hope for her recovery sam said john merritt stopping i'll go and send a friend as i know of to look after your wife a friend said sam you can't mean any or your own family john for you haven't got time to go back that length now and well never mind i've got time to go where i'm a-goin you run on to the shed bob and tell garvey that i'll be there in fifteen minutes the engine driver turned off abruptly and increasing his pace to a smart walk soon stood before the door of one of those uncommonly small neat suburban villas which the irrigating influence of the grand national trunk railway had caused to spring up like mushrooms around the noisy smoky bustling town of clatterby to the unspeakable advantage of that class of gentlefolk who possess extremely limited incomes but who nevertheless prefer fresh air to smoke is your missus at home he inquired of the stout elderly woman who answered to his modest summons for although john was wont to clatter and bang through the greater part of his daily and nightly career he was tender of touch and act when out of his usual professional beat yes do you wish to see her i does my dear sorry i haven't got a card with me but if you'll just say that it's john merritt the engine driver i just say that'll do for a free pass the elderly woman went off with a smile but returned quickly with an anxious look and bade the man follow her he was ushered into a small and poorly furnished but extremely neat and clean parlour where sat a thin little old lady in an easy-chair looking very pale evening ma'am said john bowing and looking rougher and bigger than usual in such a small apartment you-you don't bring bad news i hope my son joseph oh no mrs tipps not by no means said merritt hasting to relieve the timid old lady's feelings mr joseph is all right nothing whatever wrong with him nor likely to be ma'am leastwise he was all right when i seed him last and when might that be asked the timid old lady with a sigh of relief as she clasped her hands tightly together why let me see said john touching his forehead it was yesterday evening when i came up with the northern express but many accidents might have happened since yesterday evening said mrs tipps still in an anxious tone that's true ma'am all the engines on the grand trunk from the pentland firth to the channel might have busted their billers since that time but it ain't likely replied john with a bland smile and and what was my son doing when you passed him did you speak to him speak to him bless your heart ma'am said john with another benignant smile i went past langry station at sixty mile an hour so we hadn't much chance to speak to each other it would have been as much as we could have managed if we tried to exchange winks dreadful 
exclaimed Mrs. Tipps in a low tone. Is that the usual rate of traveling on your railway? Oh, dear, no, ma'am. It's only my express train as goes at that rate. Other expresses run between 40 and 50 miles, and ordinary trains average about 30 miles an hour. Goods, they go about 20, more or less, but they varies a good deal. The train I drive is about the fastest in the kingdom, which is pretty much the same as saying it's the fastest in the world, ma'am. Sometimes I'm obliged to go as high as nigh seventy miles an hour to make up time. The fastest mail coaches in my young days, said Mrs. Tipps, used to go at the rate of ten miles an hour, I believe. Pretty much so, said John. They did manage a mile or two more, I'm told, but that was their average of crawling with full steam on. And you sometimes drive at sixty or seventy miles an hour? Yes, ma'am. With people in the carriages? Certainly, ma'am. How I wish that I had lived a hundred years ago, sighed poor Mrs. Tipps. You'd have been a pretty old girl by this time if you had, thought the engine driver, but he was too polite to give utterance to the thought. And what was my son doing when you passed him at that frightful speed? You could see him, I suppose. Oh, yes, ma'am, I could see him well enough. He was talking and laughing, as far as I could make out, with an uncommonly pretty girl. Indeed, exclaimed Mrs. Tipps, flushing slightly, for she was extremely sensitive, and evidently much relieved by this information. Well, my good man, what do you wish me to do for you? Anything that is in my power to... Thank ye, ma'am, but I don't want you to do nothing for me. Then what have you to say to me added the old lady with a smile that was clearly indicative of a kind little heart i've come to take the liberty ma'am of asking you to do one of my mates a favor most willingly said mrs tipps with animation i shall never forget that you saved my dear joseph's life by pulling him off the line when one of your dreadful engines was going straight over him. Anything that I am capable of doing for you or your friends will be but a poor return for what you have done for me. I have often asked you to allow me to make me some such return, Mr. Merritt, and I have been grieved at your constant refusal. I am delighted that you have come to me now." "'You're very good to say so, ma'am. "'The fact is that one of my friends, "'a porter on the line named Sam Natley, "'has a young wife who is, I fear, far gone with consumption. "'She's worse tonight, and poor Sam's obliged to go on night duty, "'so he can't look at her, "'and the old ooman they've got ain't worth nothin'. So I thought I'd make bold, ma'am, to ask you to send your servant to get a proper nurse to take charge of her tonight. It would be—I'll go myself, exclaimed Mrs. Tipps, 
interrupting and starting up with a degree of alacrity that astonished the engine-driver here write down the address on that piece of paper you can write i suppose yes ma'am replied john modestly as he bent down and wrote the address in a bold flowing hand i rather think i can write i write notes on a paper i've got to fill up daily on the engine and when a man's trained to do that ma'am it's my opinion he's fit to write in any circumstances whatsomever why you'd hardly believe it ma'am but i do assure you that i wrote my first and last love letter to my missus on the engine i was driving the lightning at the time that's the name of my engine ma'am and they calls me jack blazes in consequence well i've been courtin molly off and on for about three months she belonged to pinchley station you must know where we used to stop to give her a drink what to give molly a drink no ma'am replied john with a slight smile to give the engine a drink well she met me nigh every day except sundays at that station and as we'd had a pretty long time there about five minutes we used to spend it beside the pump and made the most of it but somehow i took it into my head that molly was playing fast and loose with me and i was rather cool on her for a time Howsoever, her father being a pointsman she was shifted along with him to langry station and that's where your son is ma'am and as we don't stop there we was obliged to confine our courtship to a nod and a wave of a handkerchief leastwise she shook out a white handkerchief and i flourished a lump of cotton waste well one day as we was close upon langry station about two miles i suddenly takes it into my head that i'd bring the thing to a point so i sings out to my mate that was my fireman man says i look out jim and i draws out my pencil and bends my legs you must always bend your legs a little ma'am when you write on a locomotive it makes springs of em so to speak and i writes on the back of a blank time bill molly my dear no more shilly-shallying with me time's up if you'll be tender i'll be locomotive only say the word and we're coupled for life in three weeks a white handkerchief means yes a red and no if red you'll see a new driver on the ten fifteen a m express day after tomorrow john Merritt. i was just in time to pitch the paper crumpled up right into her bosom continued the driver wiping his forehead as if the deep anxiety of that eventful period still affected him and let me tell you ma'am it requires a deal of nice calculation to pitch a piece of crumpled paper true off a locomotive going between fifty and sixty miles an hour but it went all straight i could see that before we was gone and what was the result asked the little old lady as earnestly as if that result were still pending why the result was as it should be 
my letter was a short un, but it turned out to be a powerful break brought her up sharp and we was coupled in less than six weeks amazing phase of human life observed mrs tipps gazing in admiration at the stalwart giant who stood deferentially before her well it was a rather curious kind of proposal said merritt with a smile but it worked uncommon well i've never wanted to uncouple since then pardon me mr merritt said mrs tipps with a little hysterical laugh knowing that she was about to perpetrate a joke may i ask if there are any uh little any little tenders oh lots of em replied john quite a train of em four livin and three gone dead the last was coupled on only a short time ago you'll excuse me now ma'am he added pulling out and consulting the ponderous chronometer with which the company supplied him i must go now having to take charge of the six thirty p m train and it ain't my usual train but i'm obliged to take it to-night owing to one of our drivers having come by an accident evening ma'am john bowed and retired so promptly that poor mrs tipps had no time to make further inquiry into the accident referred to at the very mention of which her former alarm came back in full force however she wisely got the better of her own anxieties by throwing herself into those of others putting on her bonnet she sallied forth on her errand of mercy meanwhile john merritt proceeded to the engine shed to prepare his iron horse for action here he found that his fireman will garvey and his cleaner had been attending faithfully to their duty the huge locomotive which looked the more gigantic for being under cover was already quivering with that tremendous energy that artificial life which rendered it at once so useful and so powerful a servant of man its brasses shone with golden lustre its iron rods and bars cranks and pistons glimmered with silvery sheen and its heavier parts and body were gay with a new coat of green paint every nut and screw and lever and joint had been screwed up and oiled examined tested and otherwise attended to while the oblong pit over which it stood when in the shed and into which ashes were periodically emptied glowed with the light of its intense furnace ever and anon a little puff issued from its safety valve proving to john merritt that there was life within his fiery steed sufficient to have blown the shed to wreck with all its brother engines of which there were at the time two or three dozen standing some disgorging their fire and water after a journey and preparing to rest for the night some letting off steam with a fiendish yell unbearably prolonged others undergoing trifling repairs preparatory to starting next day and a few like that of our engine-driver ready for instant action 
and snorting with impatience like war horses scenting the battle from afar the begrimed warriors whose destiny it was to ride these iron chargers were also variously circumstanced some in their shirt-sleeves busy with hammer and file at benches hard by others raking out fire-boxes or oiling machinery all busy as bees save the few who having completed their preparations were buttoning up their jackets and awaiting the signal to charge at last that signal came to john merritt not in a loud shout of command or a trumpet blast but by the silent hand of time as indicated on his chronometer but how it may be asked does john merritt know precisely the hour at which he has to start the stations he has to stop at the various little acts of coupling on and dropping off carriages and trucks and returning with trains or with empties within fixed periods so punctually that he shall not interfere with run into or delay the operations of the hundreds of drivers whose duties are as complex nice important and swift as his own reader we reply that john knows it all in consequence of the perfection of system attained in railway management without this our trains and rails all over the kingdom would long ago have been smashed up into what irishmen expressively name smithereens the duty of arranging the details of the system devolves on the superintendents of the departments on the line namely the passenger goods and locomotive superintendents each of whom reigns independently and supreme in his own department but of course like the members of a well-ordered family they have to consult together in order that their trains may be properly horsed and the time of running so arranged that there shall be no clashing in their distinct though united interests when the number of trains and time of running have been fixed and finally published by the passenger superintendent who is also sometimes the outdoor superintendent and who has duties to perform that demand very considerable powers of generalship it is the duty of the locomotive superintendent to supply the requisite engines this officer besides caring for all the plant or rolling stock new and old draws out periodically a schedule in which is detailed to a nicety every minute act that has to be done by drivers the hour at which each engine is to leave the shed on each day of the week the number of each engine its driver and fireman and the duties to be performed and this sheet contains daily nay almost hourly directions for passenger goods and pilot engines in order to secure attention to these regulations each engineman is fined one shilling for every minute he is behind time in leaving the shed 
the difficulty of making these runnings of trains dovetail into each other on lines where traffic is great and constant may well be understood to be considerable particularly when it is remembered that ordinary regular traffic is interfered with constantly by numerous excursions special and other irregular trains in the midst of which also time must be provided for the repair and renewal of the line itself the turning of old rails laying down of new ones raising depressed sleepers renewing broken chairs etc all which is constantly going on and that too at parts of the line over which hundreds of trains pass in the course of the twenty-four hours besides the arrangements of the regular traffic which are made monthly a printed sheet detailing the special traffic repairs of lines new and altered signals working arrangements etc is issued weekly to every member of the staff particularly to engine drivers and guards we chance to possess one of these private sheets issued by one of our principal railways let us peep behind the scenes for a moment and observe how such matters are managed the vacation has come to an end and the boys of rapscallion college will on a certain day pour down on the railway in shoals with money in hand and a confident demand for accommodation this invading army must be prepared for ordinary trains are not sufficient for it delay is dangerous on railways it must not be permitted therefore the watchful superintendent writes an order which we find recorded as follows wednesday twenty sixth april accommodation must be provided on this day in the three ten and six twenty five p m up and two twenty five and six ten p m down trains for the cadets returning to rapscallion college by the trains named rapscallion college tickets will be collected at whitewater on the down journey and at smokingham on the up journey Oldershot to send a man to Whitewater to assist in the collection of these tickets. Again, a relief train has to be utilized. It won't pay to run empty trains on the line unnecessarily. Therefore, the superintendent has his eye on it and writes, April 23rd, an empty train will leave Whiteheath for Woolwich at about eight ten p m to work up from woolwich at nine o five p m calling at woolwich dockyard and curlton and forming the nine fifteen p m up ordinary train from whiteheath great gun street to provide engines and guards for this service this is but a slight specimen of the providing dovetailing timing and guarding that has to be done on all the lines in the kingdom in the same sheet from which the above is quoted we find notes cautions and intimations as to such various matters 
as the holding of the levers of facing points when the trains are passing through junctions the attention required of drivers to new signals the improper use of telegraph bells the making search for lost passes the more careful loading of goods wagons the changes in regard to particular trains the necessity of watchfulness on the part of station masters robberies having been committed on the line the intimation of dates when and places where ballast trains are to be working on the line the times and places when and where repairs to the line are to take place during the brief intervals between trains of the ordinary traffic and many other matters which naturally lead one to believe that superintendents of railways must possess the eyes of argus the generalship of wellington and the patience of job being carefully hedged in as we have shown with strict rules and regulations backed by fines in case of the slightest inattention and the certainty of prompt dismissal in case of gross neglect or disobedience with the possibility of criminal prosecution besides looming in the far distance our friend john merritt knowing his duties well and feeling perfect confidence in himself and his superiors consulted his chronometer for the last time said now then bill and mounted his noble steed will garvey who was putting a finishing drop of oil into some part of the machinery took his station beside his mate and eased off the brake john let out two sharp whistles an imperative duty on the part of every driver before starting an engine and let on the steam the first was a very soft pulsation a mere puff but it was enough to move the ponderous engine as if it had been a cork though its actual weight with tender was fifty-three tons another puff and slowly the iron horse moved out of its stable there was a gentle oily gliding effect connected with its first movements that might have won the confidence even of timid mrs captain tipps another puff of greater strength shot the engine forward with a sudden grandeur of action that would certainly have sent the lady's heart into her throat in a few seconds it reached and passed the place where the siding was connected with the main line and where a pointsman stood ready to shift the points here the obedient spirit of the powerful steed was finely displayed will garvey reversed the action of the engines by a process which though beautifully simple and easily done cannot be easily described john let on a puff of steam and the engine glided backwards as readily as it had run forward a few seconds afterwards it moved slowly under the magnificent arch of clatterby station 
and its buffers met those of the train it was destined to draw as if with the gentle touch of a friendly greeting at the station all was bustle and noise but here we must venture to do what no human being could accomplish in reality compelled the six thirty p m train to wait there until it shall be our pleasure to give it the signal to start meanwhile we shall put back the clock an hour or so ask the reader to return to mrs tipps residence and observe what transpired there while john merritt was in the shed getting his iron steed ready for action End of chapter 2 The driver visits a little elderly gentlewoman and prepares the iron horse for action. Recording by Susan Morin, Portland, Maine.